Gospel of John, starting at verse 1 in chapter 4, we'll read 1 through 18. Pew Bible, I think it's 888 in the Pew Bible. This is the word of the Lord, beloved. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, that's high noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me? a woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. And the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. We're going to spend the whole fall with Jesus and this woman, 12 sermons. Why? Why should we focus on her? Jesus did. And Jesus shows his care for her as much as he cares for you. Granted, we are uh, not very like this woman. We're separated by roughly 2,000 years. She lived in a Middle Eastern culture. Probably none of you would consider yourselves to be living in a Middle Eastern culture. How many of you got up this morning and drew water out of a well to get to make your coffee this morning? Probably not. How many of you know a Samaritan? Yet we're different from her in a lot of ways, but actually in some, we're very much like her. And you you could sum up the way you are like this complete stranger with this question. If you were asleep in the face of danger, would you want to be awakened? Yes, you would. 
How would you know if you were spiritually asleep? How would you know if you were oblivious to all things ultimately important, spiritual matters? How would you know if you were spiritually asleep? It's a profound answer, so listen carefully. You would know you had awakened from spiritual sleep by knowing you're not spiritually asleep. People who are spiritually asleep don't know it. People who have been awakened into spiritual life know they once were spiritually asleep. It's sort of illustrated in this dear lady that I knew in my church in Charlottesville. Her name was Betsy Hardeen. She was older. And she used to say, Mike, I grew up in the church. I'm not sure I ever heard the gospel, but then God opened my eyes to the gospel. And she says, reflecting back, I didn't know what I didn't know. I didn't know what I didn't know. She'd been spiritually asleep. She was spiritually awakened, and then she knew she's no longer spiritually asleep. People who are spiritually asleep don't know they're asleep. And she'd say, she'd always conclude the conversation this way, I thank the Lord every day for my salvation. <laughs> great. It's just great. I want to ask this question this morning. What conditions are necessary for spiritual awakening? There are at least four from the text. I'll go over three today and one next week. And there's a lot more to say about different elements in the text than I'm going to say today. I'm going to take 12 weeks. So if I don't touch on some aspect of the text you think is evident in this sermon, please bear with me. If I miss it after 12 weeks, then by all means, let's talk. What conditions are necessary for spiritual awakening? For spiritual awakening. Number one, a gracious, holy disturbance. The very setting tells you a lot about the grace of God. God in his grace comes to us, he gets us alone, and he makes no distinctions. Let me, let me tease out those three things. He comes to us, he gets us alone, and he makes no distinctions. First, he comes to us. Um, John writes in the first two verses that apparently Jesus wants no part of this tallying that's going on by the Pharisees. How many disciples for John? How many disciples for Jesus? He doesn't want any part of that. So he leaves Jerusalem, the power center, the theological religious center in Israel. He leaves Jerusalem in the south and heads back to the area where he's from, Galilee in the north. In order to do that on a straight line, you would need to go through the region of Samaria. No faithful Jew would step foot in Samaria. They would do this. They would head east across the Jordan River, go up the east side of the Jordan, and come back into Galilee to the west, Galilee to the west, to avoid going through Samaria. It's as if you wanted to go roughly from Washington, D.C. to Wilmington. What's the direct route? 95. Boom. Straight up, 95. But because you hate Baltimore. Now, I can say it because I was born there, right? You don't want to go through dreaded Baltimore. You go across the Bay Bridge. And you go up the peninsula to get to Wilmington, way out of your way. 
Jews avoided Samaria. Samaritans and Jews hated each other. Big racial ethnic tension. Why? The conflict goes back 700 years. The tension is 700 years ago from the time of the, the story. The Assyrians swoop down and scatter most of the Israelites living in the northern part of Israel. But they don't want to leave the land barren. They want to claim the land, so they leave a few Jews in the land, and they send their own Assyrians down to intermarry with those faithful remaining, those remaining Jews. Those people become the Samaritan race. Now, if you're a faithful Jew, you would know, how dare you intermarry with an Assyrian? And they develop their own kind of syncretistic religion. They only accepted the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They only used the Pentateuch. They even built their own temple. That, that's like anathema. That's like Baltimore building a, a new capital for the United States. How dare you? And even when the Israelites came back from the Exodus in uh, a, uh, B.C. 550, when they came back from the Exodus, the Samaritans offered them help. They refused it. So the animosity, the hatred runs deep. Jesus does not let that keep him out of Samaria. He goes straight through. She wasn't looking for Jesus. He was looking for her. Grace seeks us out far beyond we ever start seeking out grace. Secondly, I'm talking about God awakening you by using a holy, gracious disturbance. Secondly, Jesus gets her alone. Providentially, the woman comes by herself. It's noon. It's hot. Jesus, in his humanity, is wearied from his journey. He's been walking a long way. The disciples have gone into town to Subway to get sandwiches. He's alone. Women in this culture did not come to the well at noon. It was too hot. They came in the cool of the day, either morning or evening. They came in groups of women because the jars were very heavy. She has come by herself. She wants to avoid public shame for her lifestyle. She's an outcast. She sleeps with all kinds of men. But from our vantage point, God in his grace has arranged a time when he can get her by herself, no distractions. It's easy to hide in a crowd. It's easy to pack your schedule with so many things that you don't have any time to stop and listen to God. So God is pleased to use lots of different things just to get a one-on-one -on -one audience with you. Maybe sickness, maybe loss, calamity, tough finances. But there's a time in your life, Jesus says, Give me a drink. Let's talk. It's because he loves you. He wants to get out of the way, the, the distracting noises. I'm calling this a, a holy disturbance in the spirit of Psalm 46.10. Be still and know that I am God. My guess is if we did a poll that the times you or I in the last month were really still before God, we could probably count on just a few hands. If God didn't create these times, we would go on ignoring them. 
who just wouldn't care. I think of the words of the psalmist, Psalm 10, verse 4. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek God. All his thoughts are, there are no God. There is no God. And to the degree I don't carve out any time just to be with God, I am living as a functional atheist. I'm living as if I don't need God. That God doesn't desire communion with me. Then in the same psalm, Psalm 10, verse 11, he says in his heart, God has forgotten. He's hidden his face. He'll never see it. We pretend to live as if we're an audience of one. (laughs) That God doesn't see us. So maybe for you, time with God is a little slot in a very busy calendar. Here's the slot. Maybe church. Maybe five minutes in the morning. (laughs) Or God's like a credit card. He's, He's safe. He's tucked away in your wallet. Pull it out just when you need it. God wants to get you alone. How are you silencing your conscience that you're squeezing God out of your life? How are you silencing your conscience? Maybe going to church. Maybe working hard. Maybe striving to be a really good parent. Maybe going to ministry meetings on campus. Those things are great, but they just may be, they may be strategies you're using to, have to avoid being silent with God, one-on-one at the well. Third, Jesus, to create this holy disturbance, makes no distinctions. In all likelihood, John is drawing a sharp contrast with the Samaritan woman, with a man we met in the chapter before in John 3, Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a man. She's a woman. He was educated. She's uneducated. Nicodemus was a religious leader. She's a social outcast. Nicodemus was upright. She's immoral. Nicodemus was Jewish. She is a Samaritan. Jesus is saying, in the spirit of John 3.16, God so loved the world that he sent his son, Jesus is saying, I am here for the world. (laughs) I came for the outcasts. I came for people who have nothing. The son of man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Thank you, Jesus. Even the disciples arrive and are surprised he's talking to a woman. Does your Savior really function as a physical trainer? He makes the strong stronger. He helps good people get better. (laughs) No, beloved, he is the great physician who came for the sick. Actually, if you wanted to summarize why Jesus came to earth, is he came to raise the dead. He came to raise the dead spiritually. He came to raise the dead physically, ultimately. And so the church is a place when you walk in, you realize, oh, this is a place for losers, for dropouts, for the morally destitute. And when I walk through those doors, anything I might be tempted to use to put, make a distinction between me and other people, my education, my race, my wealth, my personality, whatever, those distinctions fall off. We are a gathering of wretched people who need a wonderful, bounteous Savior. That's what unifies us. Those distinctions, they're stripped away. Okay, so What are the conditions necessary for spiritual awakening? A gracious, holy disturbance. He he gets her alone. Do you just love it? I mean, Jesus has this, it's a setup. He knows when he leaves Jerusalem, he's going to save that woman. We're going to see that the whole town gets saved. Number two, the knowledge of God. 
What's necessary for spiritual awakening? The knowledge of God. In verse 10, he says to her, if you knew, translated, you think you're religious, but you don't know God, was not very politically correct. He just said, bold-faced, you don't know God. And that is because God is not someone we are free to imagine in our own minds. He is a real living person with a name and a personality, and he must be known on his terms. It's very much like your driver's license. The state of Maryland required you to get a Maryland driver's license, making sure you drive on their terms, not your own. We don't have spiritual life until we know God on his terms. And it raises what question? How would you know your experience religiously is genuine? How would you know? Kind of the question lingering beneath this story. How would you know that? I ask because I know a lot of people who seem to live their whole lives right around the corner from the truth. They live so close to the truth, but they haven't come around the corner. How would you know? Well, let's look to Jonathan Edwards, the greatest intellect probably in the history of the church. Edwards was very concerned with this. As revivals were going on in New England, he was pressing into what's a real genuine religious experience. And he said, if you have no insight into the holiness of God, your religious experience is a counterfeit. The holiness of God. It staggers us to the core. It functions to burn away fuzzy Mamby-pamby apprehensions of God. The holiness of God, it burns away our sentimentalizing and packaging God so we can manage God on agreeable terms. The holiness of God burns away this idealized sense I had that I was a decent person. One of my mentors in seminary, Jack Miller, wrote in his book, The Heart of a Servant Leader, this. I thought this was very helpful. He says, actually, he warns, in each of us, there's an ugly human energy driving us away from God, a reactive allergy to God and his holiness, a refusal to submit to God's control, and a treasonous disloyalty to his person and his laws. This makes us objects of his wrath. Do you agree? Is it okay with you that God looks at that kind of heart and he doesn't like it? Is that okay? If it's not okay with you, you have not apprehended the holiness or the glory of God. Think about people in the Bible that are confronted with the glory of God. Moses at the burning bush, on his face. Job, I shut up, put my hand over my mouth. Isaiah, woe is me, I am undone. The three apostles on the Mount of Transfiguration, what do they do when God shows up in all his glory? They fall on their faces in fear. John on the island of Patmos, when I saw him, I fell on his face as a dead man. Beloved, it's in our nature to create gods with whom we are comfortable. And this woman has done that. And she's suffering from an additional uh, point of ignorance. As I told you, the Samaritans only used the first five books of the Bible. That means they didn't have access to the Psalms, Proverbs, Prophets, the historical writings. And that creates a serious theological deficiency. 
doesn't it? And a worship deficiency. You need to get the whole Bible to get the whole picture of the all of God's glory. So take this for an example. In Genesis, in her Bible, she would have read in Genesis 3.15 that God was going to solve the problem of Adam's rebellion against God and our being banned from paradise. God was going to solve the problem by bringing a seed from the woman who would bruise the serpent on the head. In a sense, that starts the search for the seed in the Old Testament. Well, you get through Deuteronomy and how much information you have about who the seed is. A little, but not a lot. You get some promises, you get some anticipation, that kind of thing. But if that's where you stop, you don't learn that the seed is going to be nothing less than God himself in the flesh in Jesus. It's as if somebody wrote you directions to to an incredibly important event. And there's, you know, 12 steps to get there. Start out here, turn left here, turn right there, turn left there, turn right And they just rip it in half. And all you've got are the first couple steps. How do you get there? You need the whole Bible, not just the first five books. And see, notice how Jesus said to her, if you knew the gift of God. One reason she doesn't know it is her Bible's incomplete. The gift of God is his grace. It's his favor. Her Bible's too small and her God's too small and therefore her God had no power to break her from her idolatrous lifestyle. Let's move on to the third and final condition necessary for spiritual awakening. Thirst. Thirst is spiritual passion. It's desiring the life of God when we discover that our devices for seeking wholeness or happiness fail us. John Daly read earlier in the service, had us read from Psalm 63, verse 1. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh Thanks for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water, written in a climate that was generally arid. So, beloved, you recognize true spiritual thirst as opposed to its counterfeits. You desire to come clean with God. You deal honestly with the way you've ordered your life to hide your shame. She's coming to the well at noon to hide her shame. He's ashamed of herself. She doesn't want the other water getters going, which man are you sleeping with this week? Really? She got her life packaged to keep God away and everyone else from scrutinizing her. Beloved, one of the main inhibitors of spiritual thirst is being enamored with things that can't satisfy it. You know what they are. Wealth, comfort, Success, pleasure, approval, control, sensuality, competence, popularity, appearance, relationship, all good things. But they will never satisfy you spiritually if God is not at the center. They are small glories inept to fill your soul. So how does Jesus draw out her thirst with the very thing at hand, water. They both need a drink of water. And he says, I can give you more water than you know what to do with. And of course, she's thinking in earthly terms, she misunderstands, and she says, hey, look, Jesus, you may not know it, but this is a really good well. 
It's about 2,000 years old. It stood the test of time. It's Jacob's well. Not only he drank from it, but his cattle. Cattle drink a lot of water. That must mean it's a really, really good well, and it's still here to this day. And Jesus is talking about heavenly reality. Lady, you can get water from this well. I'm going to put a spring in you that will be there for eternity. And again, her Bible's too small to understand the gift. I've got some verses for you in the, in the outline that show God describes himself metaphorically as a spring or a well. You give them to drink of the river of your delights, for with thee is the fountain of life. You would joyfully draw water from the springs of salvation. You have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. Psalm 114.8, who turned the rock into a pool, the hard rock into springs of water. And ultimately, we know Jesus was that rock that was struck from which the water of life came. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. Her problem was that the spring in her heart was polluted with sin. And she had no way to make it pure. And this is what Jesus has come to do for you and for her, to put his spring in you. He's showing her and he's showing you that all your strategies to find satisfaction, personal waking, awakening, happiness, all your strategies are going to fail you unless you're drinking from God himself alone in Christ. The, the prophet Jeremiah put it this way, be appalled, O heavens, look at this, be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, there's another illusion, and have hewn out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that hold no water. Jesus is saying, be honest with yourself. Self, where are you trying to get vitality? Anything you live for apart from God is poking a hole in your soul. It's why you're miserable. It's why you can't sleep. It's why you're so lustful. It's why you are grabbing everything you can at work for your significance. You're poking your soul with things that are draining it of life. I love, well, I love the way Paul puts it in Ephesians 4, that they have become callous, given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. Your false satisfiers of your thirsts always say more. That's why Jesus says, if you drink from me, you'll be satisfied spiritually. In Christ, we always get more than we ask for. So to finish, she came to the well with a bucket. Verse 28 says, she left without her bucket. And we know she left with a living well in her soul because Jesus saved her. Curiously, we're not told if Jesus ever got his drink. Perhaps that is John's way of anticipating Christ's words on the cross, only recorded in John. I thirst. For Jesus to put in your heart a well of living water, he had to be consumed with the polluted stench water of your sin. On the cross, 
bearing the burning heat of the wrath of his Father for your sin. Jesus had no comfort, no refreshment. He took your sin in his flesh. He gave up his life to plan in you everlasting life, to cleanse you, to give you what you could never, ever desire or accomplish on your own. He's the spring. He's life. He's salvation. He's the satisfier of your souls. He said, I thirst, so you can say, I never will again. Isn't it beautiful? Every day you have a reminder of this. You will be thirsty tomorrow. You will be thirsty Tuesday. You will be thirsty Wednesday. You will be thirsty the rest of your life for physical water. And that, that communicates to you your need for Jesus and his grace. And when you have it, you will not only say, yes, but you'll want more of it. We'll, we'll talk about that as we move through the text. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your precious sheep. Thank you for these living wells you've set in front of me. Boys and girls, men and women who, who have drunk freely from the waters of salvation offered them through Jesus, the life giver, the one who in thirst died to pay for their sins. Thank you for my brothers and sisters. Cause them and me to be deeply satisfied drinking from this well. To say with David, I earnestly seek you. My soul is parched for you. Forgive us for the ways we satisfy our souls so quickly and so easily with things that can never satisfy. Thank you that they don't satisfy. Thank you that that's a living parable of our need for Christ. So lavish upon the hearts of my brothers and sisters, Jesus, the living water, the well that never fails, the one abounding in mercy and kindness. In his name, amen.